Usama ibn Munkid was born in Shizar Castle in northern Syria on the 4th of July 1095, just four months prior to the Council of Claremont, where the Latin Christian Pope Urban II would proclaim an armed pilgrimage to Jerusalem. In 1098, when Usama was just three years old, his uncle, Sultan, the Emir of Shizar, formed an alliance with the marauding Latin Christian horde that had just proven their mettle by capturing one of the jewels of northern Syria, the port city of Antioch, and thoroughly sacking it. There were even rumors of insane cannibals traveling with this army. Shizar was a small power, and Sultan no doubt considered it would do much better to direct these brutal barbarians elsewhere. He provided them with food, water, and horses, and sent them on their way south to Jerusalem. From this moment, Ali Franj, the Franks, would be a constant presence for the residents of Shizar and the rest of Syria-Palestine. Usama grew up in this world and became a renowned poet knight, and for 93 years until his death in 1188, he used his wit and skill with words to survive. He traveled from court to court, even serving as a diplomat to the Frankish king of Jerusalem. Towards the end of his life, Usama wrote his Kitab Alitibar, his book of learning by example, a collection of anecdotes meant to impart lessons. In these writings, the Franks make frequent appearances, often as the butt of the joke in farcical tales. He wrote, In the army of King Falk, son of Falk, there was a respected Frankish knight who had come from their country just to go on pilgrimage and then return home. He grew to like my company, and he became my constant companion, calling me my brother. Between us, there were ties of amity and sociability. When he resolved to take to the sea back to his country, he said to me, My brother, I am leaving for my country. I want you to send your son. My son, who was with me, was 14 years old. I want you to send your son with me to my country, where he can observe the knights and acquire reason and chivalry. When he returns, he will be like a truly rational man. And so there fell upon my ears words that would never come from a truly rational head. For even if my son were taken captive, his captivity would be as long as any voyage he might take to the land of the Franks. So I said, by your life, I was hoping for this very thing. But the only thing that has prevented me from doing so is the fact that his grandmother adores him and almost didn't even allow him to come here with me until she had exacted an oath from me that I would return him to her. Your mother, he asked, is she still alive? Yes, I replied. Then do not disobey her, he said. The Franks possessed nothing in the way of regard for honor or propriety. Here's another example. We had with us a bathkeeper called Salim, who was originally an inhabitant of the city of Ma'ara, and who served in the bathhouse of my father. May God have mercy upon him. He told me, I once opened a bathhouse in Ma'ara to earn my living. Once, one of their knights came in. Now, they don't take to people wearing a towel about their waist in the bath. So this knight stretched out his hand, pulled off my towel from my waist, and threw it down. He looked at me. I had recently shaved my pubic hair, and said, Salim! Then he moved in closer to me. He then stretched his hand over my groin, saying, Salim! Good! By the truth of my religion, do that to me too! He then lay down on his back. He had it thick as a beard down there. So I shaved him, and he passed his hand over it, and finding it smooth to the touch, said, Salim! 
by the truth of your religion, do it to Madame. Madame in their language means the lady, meaning his wife. He then told one of his attendants, tell Madame to come here. The attendant went and brought her and showed her in. She lay down on her back, and the knight said, do her like you did me. So I shaved her hair there, as her husband stood watching me. He then thanked me and paid me my due for the service. Now consider this great contradiction. They have no sense of propriety or honor, yet they have immense courage. Yet what is courage but a product of honor and disdain for ill repute? Glory be to the Creator, the Maker. Indeed, when a person relates matters concerning the Franks, he should give glory to God and sanctify him, for he will see them to be mere beasts, possessing no other virtues but courage and fighting. Hello, and welcome to History of the Uchimer, episode 2.1, starting with, what is a Frank? Well, Usama's got an answer for you. Uncouth barbarians possessing no other virtues but courage and fighting. But it's important to not read too much into Usama's writing. Not only are many of his takes, frankly, pun intended, unbelievable, but they're not even meant to be believed. Usama was writing within the Arabic literary genre of adab, which often used ridiculous tales in an attempt to thrill readers and impart lessons. Think like medieval Seinfeld. In fact, Usama is very Jerry-like, and his friend Salim is probably more of a Kramer. Thick as a beer, Jerry! Usama's tales likely had grains of truth at times, but these were, at the very least, embellished. Still, because we know that the way they refer to the Franks is intended to make Usama's readers laugh, we can get a view of perceptions. Not necessarily how Muslims like Usama and Franks actually interacted, but how these interactions, and the participants in them, were perceived. Usama was drawing on stereotypes that already existed in Arabic portrayals of Western Europe. See, medieval Muslims had a very environmentally deterministic view of the world which they had inherited from the work of the Greco-Roman mathematician and scientist, Ptolemy of Alexandria. Ptolemy was probably of Greek ethnicity, or at least a Hellenized Egyptian, but he lived in Alexandria during the 2nd century AD, when it was a part of the Roman Empire, and he was also probably a Roman citizen. In his work, Ptolemy put forward the notion that societies were shaped by their natural environment, which he related to latitudinal zones, what the ancient Greeks called klimata, singular klima, meaning slope or inclination, the source of English climate. The notion of these latitudinal zones had a long history before Ptolemy. Centuries earlier, Aristotle had described a five-klima system, but Ptolemy settled on a seven-klima system, and that's what prevailed in medieval Muslim science as well. Obviously, the best zones which produced the best people, were the third and fourth climas. These were in perfect harmony. Coincidentally, they lined up with North Africa, the Levant, Iran, and Iberia, the centers of Muslim learning and culture. 
To the north, the sixth clima was home to the Franks, the Slavs, and the Turks. And it produced brutish, warlike savages. Last season, we explored the slave armies typical to Muslim states of the era. And as I mentioned, many of the slave soldiers, called either Mamluks or Ghulams, were either Slavs or Turks, which reinforced this notion of a predisposition to conflict. These ideas wouldn't exactly be refuted by the arrival of the Turkmen and then later the Franks. If anything, they would be hardened by the fact that both the Turkmen and the Franks were brutal conquerors of Muslim cities. To quote from Paul M. Cobb's The Race for Paradise, an Islamic history of the Crusades, from the perspective of the medieval Islamic world, the lands of the Franks occupied a place not unlike that occupied by the Middle East today in the minds of many in the West. To medieval Muslim eyes, Western Europe was superficially an impoverished, one might even say quote-unquote developing region on the margins of the world. It was inhabited by a fanatical, warlike people, adherents of a backward creed. Its economy offered little besides cheap markets and raw materials. It presented some wondrous architecture and outre customs to contemplate, but little else. The Islamic world, by contrast, seemed the very model of civilization. It was wealthy, ordered, enlightened, imperial, and protected by a merciful God. End quote. This perception of the Frankish lands, that is, Western Europe, was shared by the Byzantine Romans. Remember how Anakom Nini described the quote-unquote Celts and their uncontrollable passion, their erratic character, and their irresolution. We, however, don't have to settle for the prejudiced views of Anna or Usama. During the rest of the episode, we'll explore in greater detail what exactly these Frankish lands were and how the residents there were being primed to engage in a mass pilgrimage to the east. To talk about the origins of the Franks, we need to turn the clock back a bit, to the time of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was a Mediterranean power. The territory they controlled encircled this great sea, and the rapid trade it permitted nourished the empire. However, in late antiquity, the ring shattered. Roughly speaking, we can describe three successor regions. There was, of course, the remnant of the Roman Empire, based out of Constantinople, which wasn't really much of an empire anymore, even if it was still very Roman. However, the other two successors were shaped by not only memories of the empire of old, but by the arrival of new ethnic groups and identities from outside the empire. In the southern Mediterranean, curling up Iberia to the west and the Levant in the east, was the abode of Islam, the lands conquered by the Rashidun and Umayyad caliphates, which even if it ended up politically divided, in many ways, including culturally and in terms of trade, operated as one continuous region. The Arab conquests brought not only Arabic influences, but Persian ones, because the caliphate had also swallowed up the Persian Empire and been shaped in large part by Persian court culture and literature. The Arabs also preserved many of the Roman imperial systems, particularly when it came to economic matters. They kept the same trade routes and the same Roman tax systems. Even their merger of the role of religious and political leader in the form of the caliph has a very Roman vibe to it. In the Byzantine Roman Empire and in lands controlled by Muslims, there was a high degree of continuity stretching back to antiquity, a focus on urban areas, use of currency, a paid army, and high rates of literacy. An illiterate caliph or Byzantine Vasilevs was nearly unthinkable. 
On the other hand, the third successor was cut from a different cloth. These were the barbarian kingdoms, centered around the Roman province of Gallia, basically what we would think of as France today. Just as the Muslims had entered the empire from the borderlands of Arabia, the barbarians came primarily from the region we would think of as Central Europe, the lands beyond the Rhine and Danube rivers, though some were originally from lands farther north and east. From the 4th to the 6th century, during a period known as the Migration Period, these groups of non-Roman peoples, described by the Romans as barbarians, began to migrate into the empire. It's hard to know exactly how these people saw themselves and how they were organized politically or socially. They spoke mostly Germanic languages, but they had probably also incorporated Slavic and Turkic groups as well. A lot of them definitely had close ties to steppe culture. The Romans weren't particularly skilled ethnographers, and so when they gave them a name, they were likely brushing over a complex social-political tapestry. Nevertheless, these are the names we have, and you probably recognize some of them already. The Goths, the Vandals, the Burgundians, the Lombards, and the Franks. The Romans engaged these barbarians as foederati, federates, basically mercenary warbands, and often used them to fight other barbarian groups. They also served as cannon fodder for internal Roman squabbles and coups. Because of this, they became closely tied to Roman military culture, bringing in other Roman soldiers and escaped slaves under their banners. And to some extent, they could be described as Roman armies gone rogue. Because, spoiler alert for those of you living in the 4th century AD, the barbarian federate armies went rogue and played a key role in the fall of the Western Roman Empire. It's an eternal debate, actually, as to whether they caused the fall or merely profited from it. The process was actually not too dissimilar from the early Arab conquests. Many of the soldiers serving in the early caliphate had probably served as something similar to Roman federates prior to, in a sense, rebelling and taking over the whole thing for themselves. However, in the West, this process was much slower, and what emerged was a much more fused-together melange of barbarian and Roman military identities. By the year 500, a few decades after the deposition of the last Western Roman emperor, the Vandals were in control of the province of Africa, what the Muslims later called Ifriqiya, and what we would now call the Maghreb, basically. The Visigoths, or Western Goths, controlled most of Iberia and part of southern France. The Ostrogoths, or Eastern Goths, controlled the Italian peninsula. The Burgundians controlled a huge chunk of mostly Alpine territory between the two Goths. And in northern France, a warlord by the name of Clovis was uniting the scattered barbarian tribes of the region, as well as the remnants of Roman aristocracy, into one kingdom. The kingdom of the Franks. The Franks were a group of Germanic peoples. They spoke a variety of West Germanic dialects and languages that for simplicity's sake, we refer to as just Frankish, even if they probably didn't use this name themselves. At least not all of them. Descendants of the dialects they spoke would eventually become modern languages, like Dutch and German. Before Clovis, the Franks were not at all united, and if we speak about them as one group, it's only because we lack the details as to how exactly they were organized. It's very similar to trying to figure out what a Turkmen is. References to Frankish groups in Latin texts go back to the 3rd century, 
but it's unclear who exactly the Romans are talking about. It's also unclear what exactly the name Frank is supposed to mean. It might refer to a particular weapon that the Franks really liked, or it might just mean something like the Free Folk. As the Western Empire crumbled, many Germanic groups that lived near the Roman border began to set themselves up in northern Gaul, which had always been a bit of a Wild West frontier zone. Hey, wait. Free Folk. Just on the other side of the border. That sounds familiar. Anyway, Clovis' father, Childeric, had probably served in the Roman army at some point, perhaps under the general Flavius Aetius, who had fought Attila the Hun in Gaul, and he was the ruler of the city and region of Tournai, in what is now Belgium. This is where Clovis was born. The name Clovis is from the Germanic name Lodowig, and it's the source of the modern names Louis in English, Louis in French, and Luis in Spanish. Its cousins in other Germanic languages include Ludwig in German. The name combines the Germanic words Hlut and Wieg. Hlut means famed or heard of. In English, the same source has become the word loud. And Wieg means war. So Hlodewig would have been interpreted as meaning something like heard of for his warring, or more succinctly put, war famous. Clovis got to work on this war fame at a young age. In his teens, he inherited his father's lands in Tournai, and soon began gobbling up all the other territories around him and making alliances with the Burgundians and Ostrogoths to the southeast. His marriage to a Burgundian princess, which cemented his alliance with the Burgundian king, also produced a quirk of history that was to have immense consequences, because this princess, Clotilde, whose Germanic name, Hludahildis, also meant basically famous for battle. Well, she was a Catholic Christian. Now, Clovis was himself probably already a Christian before his marriage to Clotilde. He might have been born a pagan, but it seems like early on in his life, he converted to Christianity. However, Clovis didn't convert to the official Roman state-sanctioned brand of Christianity, what we would call Catholic in the West or Orthodox in the East. No, Clovis converted to Aryan Christianity. That's right, boys and girls and everyone else, it's time to play Who's That Schism Sect? Let's get this out of the way first. This is Aryan with an I, not a Y. The whole Nazi Aryan thing has absolutely nothing to do with this. Nazi Aryan with a Y is actually from the same source as Iran and Iranian, and it has more to do with Persian and Indian history than anything Germanic or even European and it definitely has nothing to do with blue eyes or blonde hair. Surprise, surprise, the Nazis were really fucking bad at history. Anyway, Aryan with an I comes from Arius, who lived in what is now Libya in the late 3rd, early 4th century. And he was responsible for one of Christianity's first great schisms. Almost a proto-schism, to be honest. So if you recall from way back in episode 1.1, the Council of Chalcedon in 451 was convened to discuss the nature of Christ. In the end, the official party line was that Christ had both a human and divine nature in one body. This led to the secession of three very important churches, the Armenian Church, the Syriac or Jacobite Church, and the Coptic Church of Egypt. These three were labeled Monophysite, or low-nature Christians, because they didn't buy this whole two-nature thing. However, they prefer the label Miaphysite, or one-nature, 
which is different for theological reasons that I do not understand and that I will not attempt to explain, lest I offend. The simplest label, I believe, is just non-Chalcedonian, because it was the decision at Chalcedon that caused them to break away from the Catholic Orthodox Church. Now, a century earlier, in the time of Arius, the debate was still about the nature of Christ, but it was a bit reversed. See, Arius was a bit more hardcore about that whole two natures thing. In fact, he was all about separating God and Christ, and positioning Christ the Son as subordinate to God the Father. I'm being real light on the details here about the whole theological argument, because it's complicated and I haven't done the work to understand it in detail. As I said back in episode 1.1, what's more important for us are the effects of these debates on society and politics. So, Arius also lived at a very transformative time for Christianity, at the turn of the 3rd century, when he was really getting going with his whole Arianism thing in North Africa. Persecutions of Christians were becoming more and more frequent, culminating in the Great Persecution, spearheaded by the Emperor Diocletian in the year 303. But just 10 years later, not only had the persecution ended, but the new Roman Emperor, Constantine the Great, was himself flirting with the forbidden fruit. Christian conversion. Though he apparently only actually converted on his deathbed, he relied heavily on Christian support and laid the groundwork for the formal adoption of Christianity as THE Roman religion. But Constantine couldn't have a schismatic religion sowing division in his empire, so he called the First Ecumenical Council. Ecumenical comes from the Greek word oikumenos, meaning universal. This council was to gather all Christians from the whole world, which for the Romans was actually just the Roman Empire, so that they could hash things out and put this whole nature of Christ thing to bed. This first ecumenical council met at Nicaea in 325. Nicaea is also known as Nicaea in more Greek-like pronunciations, and it would eventually become the modern city of Iznik. It's come up a few times now. In 1095, it's the capital of the Sultanate of Rum, and that stings bad for the Christians, particularly because this first council took place there, seven centuries earlier, giving it religious significance. At Nicaea, in 325, all these Christian figures from far and wide hammered out the Nicene Creed, a formal description of what Christianity actually was. Christian sects had been hiding in the shadows for so long that practices in Egypt had developed along different lines from those in Gaul or those in Anatolia and so on. After all was said and done, the Nicene Creed came down hard against Arianism. Arius refused to take the creed, obviously, so he was exiled, and his works were collected and burned. He was labeled a heretic. But this heresy had stay in power. Arianism remained popular throughout the empire, and just a few years later, a young Goth of Greek origin would introduce this brand of heretic Christianity to the Germanic peoples on the frontiers of the empire. Wulfila, meaning little wolf, not only invented the Gothic alphabet, but he wrote the first Gothic Bible and converted many of the Goths living north of the Danube to Christianity. Aryan Christianity. Over time, not only the Goths, but the Vandals as well would convert to Aryan Christianity, and so when Clovis took up the cross nearly two centuries later, he also followed the traditional Germanic route and became an Aryan Christian. However, those of Roman ethnicity living in what was once the Western Roman Empire were not Aryans. They were Nicene, Catholic Christians. 
and his new wife, the Burgundian princess, Clotilde, was also a Catholic. So eventually, in 508, on Christmas Day, Clovis also converted to Catholicism. Clovis was able to use his new Roman Catholic creed to form closer ties with the Roman aristocracy and to make war against other barbarians. Notably, he invaded the southern Gaulish territories, modern Aquitaine, held by the Aryan Christian Visigoths, and contained them to Iberia. Gregory of Tours, a Frankish bishop writing a century later, claims that the Eastern Roman Emperor Anastasius granted Clovis a consulship after he defeated the Visigoths. Gregory of Tours is actually a great example for how quickly the Roman aristocracy adapted to their new barbarian kings. Gregory was a Roman, ethnically at least, but to quote historian Chris Wickham, there is no nostalgia for the Roman Empire in his writings, and he saw his kings as Rome's legitimate successors. For their part, the barbarians also quickly picked up Roman customs. The Vandals, as well as the Goths, unlike the Franks who stayed on the frontier, lost contact with their Germanic homelands outside of the empire fairly quickly, and they switched entirely to Latin. Though the Visigoths did leave some traces in the local dialect of Latin that would eventually become Spanish. My own last name, Martinez, shows a blend of Roman and Germanic influences. Martin, or Martin, refers to the Roman god Mars, and S descends from Latin Iki, a suffix meaning of, which was copied from Visigothic naming traditions. You know, something like of Martin, as in son of Martin. It's a pretty nice example of how the Visigoths translated their Gothic identities into a Latin Roman context. As for the Franks, well, there the aristocracy was likely a bilingual society, with mostly Latin speakers in what was once Roman Gaul, and mostly Frankish speakers in territories outside of the empire's former borders. Gregory of Tours, for example, was a monolingual Latin speaker, and he never mentions having any difficulty communicating with Frankish kings, who were probably bilingual speakers of Frankish and Latin, able to communicate with all their subjects. These aspects of cultural continuity are not enough to mask the fact that this was a violent transition. Unlike the Arab armies, who were at least nominally under one banner when they conquered the world, the barbarian kingdoms were a mess. They were in many ways a continuation of Western Roman civil wars, and they had also entered into the empire as mercenaries and been shaped by Roman military tradition. Whatever their culture had been like beforehand, when they crossed the frontier, they became tied to a life of militarism and war. Gregory emphasizes the brutal violence of the warrior king Clovis in an anecdote that's since become famous. Quote, At this time, the army of Clovis pillaged many churches, for he was still sunk in the errors of idolatry. The soldiers had looted from a church, with all the other ornaments of the holy ministry, a vase of marvelous size and beauty. The bishop of this church sent messengers to the king, begging that even if the church weren't permitted to recover any other of the holy vessels, at least this vase could be restored. The king, bearing these things, replied to the messenger, Follow us to Soissons, for there all things that have been acquired are to be divided. If the lot gives me this vase, I will do what the bishop desires. When he had reached Soissons, and all the spoils had been placed in the midst of the army. The king pointed to this vase and said, I ask you, most valiant warriors, 
to not refuse me the vase in addition to my rightful part. Those of discerning mind among his men answered, Glorious king, all things which we see are yours, and we ourselves are subject to your power. Now do what seems pleasing to you, for none is strong enough to resist you. When they had thusly spoken, one of the soldiers, impetuous, envious, and vain, raised his battle axe aloft and crushed the vase with it. You shall receive nothing of this unless a just lot gives it to you, he cried out. At this, all were stupefied. The king bore his injury with the calmness of patience, and when he had received the crushed vase, he gave it to the bishop's messenger, but he nurtured a hidden wound in his chest. When a year had passed, he ordered the whole army to come fully equipped to the march camp and show their arms in brilliant array. But when he had reviewed them all, he came to the breaker of the vase and said to him, No one bears his arms as clumsily as you, for neither your spear, nor your sword, nor your axe is ready to use. And seizing the man's axe, he threw it to the ground. And when the soldier had bent a little to pick it up, the king raised his hands and crushed the man's head with his own axe. Just, he said, as you did to the vase at Soissons. Woo! And Gregory was writing in support of this guy. It's clear that what was expected from a ruler had changed. Roman aristocracy had been refined and cultured, or at least that's how the aristocrats had sought to present themselves. However, in the lands of the Franks, the new aristocratic values were focused on combat. In addition to social changes, there were also two political changes that would have long-lasting consequences. The first was a move towards a land-based system of politics, in contrast to the Roman Empire's tax-based system. As we discussed way back in episode 1.3, the Byzantine Roman Empire used a complex system of titles and honors and cold hard cash to tie the nobility to the emperor. This was possible because of the tax structure that the Byzantines had never lost. Similarly, in the Muslim world, the tax structures of the Romans and the Persians were also maintained. Not so in the barbarian kingdoms, where instead of paying the nobility, rulers gave out parcels of land, often free from central taxation. This practice grew out of Roman perceptions of wealth. Aristocrats in the empire loved their villas, personal country houses worked by slaves, and when the barbarians invaded, they were well acquainted with the status symbols of the Roman elite and sought to emulate them. We've already seen how well the barbarians adapted to Roman culture, and this could be seen as one more step towards a fusion of the new arrivals and the existing elite, developing a shared imaginary of what constituted a status symbol, land ownership. But there was one piece missing, a land tax. The Roman Empire had elites with villas, sure, but these elites had been taxed by the state. Salaried bureaucrats had kept track of who owned what and how much it was worth and then extracted an appropriate tax from the owners. This is how things worked in Egypt, for example. Under Constantine and then under Justinian and then under Al-Hakim, it was that tax structure that underpinned a strong wealthy state. Because the emperor or caliph or what have you made enough money to be a central player, both through the amount of wealth they could provide to those who remained loyal and the ease with which they could raise an army paid out of their own pocket. Don't get it twisted, though. 
This was a corrupt, violent system, and tax evasion was a common occurrence. Apparently, the Egyptians of the late empire boasted about the scars they received after being whipped for tax evasion. And of course, it was usually the rich and powerful who got away with evasion, leaving the poor to shoulder the burden. But however cruel and unjust, it was stable. Most of these taxes, probably about half, went to the army, whose job it was to police the frontiers and enforce tax collection. It was a nice little cycle, but it did leave some surplus, with which emperors and caliphs alike could build churches or mosques or orphanages, as we talked about Alexios Komnenos doing in episode 1.16. However, as usual, these are models. Pure forms of these models are hard to find. Many political systems varied over time and from region to region. A crisis period could force a change, which might then become permanent. For example, many Muslim states, including the Great Seljuk Empire, used the Iqta system, which parceled out tax profits from specific territories to soldiers. And the Byzantines, later on, used the Pronoia system, which functioned in a similar way. In fact, it has been theorized that this is actually what happened to the tax system in the Western Roman Empire. Tax profits were allotted to the Roman barbarian armies, and then, as political instability increased, this became de facto land ownership, which caused the collapse of the tax system. The evidence from this period is spotty, but this might have played a role in some regions, alongside just outright giving the land to the soldiers. This was not an overnight process, though, and it was also not uniform. It happened differently in different places. But over the first few centuries of barbarian rule, Western Europe mostly lost the tax system that had been a cornerstone of Roman imperial rule. What's important about this shift is the risk it brought into these new political systems. Instead of an emperor or caliph able to wrangle all the elites of the realm using a carrot or stick approach, elites in the barbarian kingdoms had their own sources of revenue. They didn't necessarily need the king, and the king only had income from their own lands as they lacked the infrastructure to extract wealth from the entire kingdom. In short, there was a much greater risk of fragmentation. After all, what was stopping the entire state from breaking up into individual territories? How did rulers like Clovis keep the elites in check? That brings us to change number two. The evolution in concepts involving the source of legitimate rule. The Romans had a very well-developed concept of public power. Our word public comes from Latin publicum, which was used to refer to aspects such as taxation, bureaucracy, and the quote-unquote common good, whatever that means to you. The barbarians used this Roman concept of the public as the label for political concepts they had brought with them, specifically the idea of assembly politics. An idea that free men, though not slaves or women, were entitled to weigh in on decisions and that assemblies legitimized rule. This was a concept that had its roots outside of the empire. You can find it in Germanic, Slavic, and Celtic societies, and it's also really common in steppe empires. After the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, these imported ideas merged with Roman concepts of the public to become the foundation of Frankish politics. Assembly politics a land-based economy that gave the aristocracy newfound independence, and a focus on militarized violence. That's the Greece that kept the Frankish wheel turning. By the time of his death in 511, Clovis's Kingdom of the Franks 
contained most of what we would think of as France, as well as the Netherlands, Belgium, and a good chunk of Germany. But despite all his hard work, Clovis and the Franks had a little quirk to their inheritance customs. Upon Clovis's death, his kingdom was divvied up among his sons. And from that moment on, Frankish custom would remain one of division. Clovis's many descendants are known as the Merovingians, after Clovis's quasi-mythical grandfather, Merovetch. The Merovingian Franks would operate mostly within the same sphere Clovis had set up, from what we would think of as France in the west to the German border with Czechia in the east. At times, they would interfere to a greater degree in northern Italy, or dip their toes into Iberia, and they would retain the policy of division upon inheritance, which, shocker, led to frequent civil wars between siblings and cousins. And of course, big surprise, having a bunch of civil wars wasn't exactly beneficial for the survival of a tax system, and it only aided in the development of a militarized aristocracy. Still, under the various Merovingians warring it out, the kingdom of the Franks, or Francia, operated more or less as a whole, because it shared a lot of fundamental concepts about society and politics. Even if separate courts developed, Humpty Dumpty could be put back together again. But it was going to take someone without the name Merovingian to do it. Eventually, the Merovingians lost true power, and instead it was the heads of their households, called Mayordomos, who came to hold true power. This was similar to developments we've already seen happen in the Fatimid Caliphate, with viziers placing Imam Caliphs in purely ceremonial roles. In Francia, it was the Mayordomo Charles Martel, Charles the Hammer, who really took the first steps towards completely eliminating the Merovingians after over two centuries of rule. His father, Pippin of Herstal, had united all the Frankish lands, and towards the end of his de facto rule over the kingdom of the Franks, Mr. The Hammer didn't even bother to appoint a Merovingian puppet king. Charles's son, Pippin the Short, took it even farther. He had military backing, but even if the Merovingian puppet kings no longer held true political power, the dynasty Clovis had established couldn't be dismissed without seeking a new source of legitimacy. Pippin the Short found this legitimacy in the church. Pippin the Short did something new something which was unheard of in Frankish customs. In 754, Pope Stephen II came to Francia. He was the first pope to travel north of the Alps. He was seeking Pippin's aid against the Lombards, another Germanic barbarian group, one we've talked about before in the context of Italy. In return for Pippin's aid, the pope did something interesting. He himself anointed Pippin as king, breaking the legitimacy of the Merovingian name and heralding the age of Pippin's dynasty, named after Pippin's father, Charles, the Carolingians. This foundational decision to ally with the Pope would have long-lasting consequences for the Carolingians and the Franks as a whole. To quote from Chris Wickham's Medieval Europe, This set the tone for Carolingian political action ever after. For without the support of the Church, they were just another aristocratic family, even if by far the most prominent one in Francia. End quote. We'll have plenty more to say about the Pope's role in all this later on. For now, I just want to note the similarity to the scene given to us by William of Tyre in our previous episode. It also tells of the Pope going on a transalpine journey to the land of the Franks, seeking aid. 
Pippin's decision to hear the Pope out might have been motivated by political factors. He needed some sort of legitimacy to officially dethrone the Merovingians. But there was likely a good deal of honest religious conviction there as well. The Carolingians were kind of zealots. Notably, Pippin's brother, Carloman, had ruled alongside him for a while, but given the job up to join a monastery of all things. Guys like Pippin, Carloman, and their father, Charlie Hammer, would have been role models for the Franks that participated on the First Crusade, men who were both pious and violent. Both Pippin the Short and Charles Martel fought the armies of the Muslim Umayyad Caliphate that had conquered the Visigothic Kingdom of Iberia, and they also battled and did their best to convert the pagan Saxons to their east. Pippin the Short accomplished a lot, but if you hadn't heard his name before, it's probably for the same reason no one talks about Philip II of Macedon, because he's definitely not the most famous member of his dynasty. No, just like Philip, that honor goes to his son, Albert I... Charlemagne. Charlemagne's shadow looms large over the medieval era, like Saladin, his title, The Great, has been merged into his original name, Charles, in both English and French. Charlemagne not only merged the kingdom of the Franks back into one unit, but he expanded it, conquering the Saxons and the Lombards, taking on the title of King of the Lombards for himself. Charlemagne's new Frankish empire was not particularly long-lived. The Carolingians kept the Merovingian policy of divvying up the empire among various heirs, and as a consequence, it eventually crumbled into an East Francia, roughly speaking Germany, and a West Francia, roughly speaking France, who got to keep the name of the divorce apparently. And new dynasties would end up ousting the Carolingians, the Atonians in Germany, and the Capetians, who ruled until the freaking French Revolution in France, and who actually still rule in Spain and Luxembourg via cadet branches. Either way, the influence of this united Carolingian Frankish kingdom, larger than any other European state until I guess like the EU, would far outlive the political reality. Charlemagne and the rest of the Carolingians reshaped Latin Christendom. In An Empire of Memory, the legend of Charlemagne, the Franks, and Jerusalem before the First Crusade, historian Matthew Gabriel notes, quote, At the end of the 9th century, being a Frank seems to have meant consciously associating oneself with a larger European identity and with an idealized memory of Charlemagne's reign. Being a Frank seems to have been a statement that his golden age was a part of your heritage. Gabriel later adds, when speaking of oneself and how one related to a specific place, one could be a Norman, Bavarian, or Provençal. But when speaking of a larger, greater, more Christian, and unified collectivity, one was a Frank. Being a Frank meant being Christian, being subject to the Frankish ruler's imperium. Being a Frank during and after Charlemagne's reign was not an exclusive category, but rather a supplementary one, an identity to be deployed in certain situations. End quote. The crusading army that formed in the wake of Claremont was incredibly diverse, a situation we'll be getting into later on, but this memory of the Carolingian Franks and their imperial project was a common thread that would serve to unite them. To quote Matthew Gabriel once again, while a cursory glance at contemporary sources of the First Crusade reveals that the Crusaders were all too aware of their regional differences, the narrators of the First Crusade insisted that the army was a unified people and used the word Frank more than any other to talk about themselves as a united Christian people. 
the Franks once more held God's favor, and the chosen people had reclaimed their special place in sacred history. The chroniclers of the First Crusade shared a common intellectual tradition. Being a Frank was something you earned by being a warrior, allowing you to participate in a common heritage and a common future. End quote. So, what is a Frank? Well, it was once something like an ethnic label for the Roman-influenced Germanic peoples living in what is now northern France and the Low Countries. Clovis and the Merovingians helped make it a geographic label, which stuck around in the name of the country of France. And then Charlemagne and the Carolingians made it a label tied to a certain ideology, with deep roots in centuries of a land-based militarized aristocracy that used assemblies to legitimize rule. To bring things back full circle, our friend from the opening today, Usama, might have been a bit of a xenophobe, but he was no fool. And he wasn't blind to the Frankish obsession with warrior might, or the lingering elements of assembly politics and how the Franks dealt with legal decisions. These ideological components that were key parts of the Carolingian imperial project, and which were at the heart of the Frankish identity. Quote, The Franks, may God confound them, have none of the human virtues except for courage. They have neither precedence nor high rank except that of the knights, and no men worthy of the name except the knight. It is they who are the masters of legal reasoning, judgment, and sentencing. I once brought a case before them concerning some flocks of sheep that the Lord of Banias had seized from the woods while there existed a truce between us. At the time, I was based in Damascus. I said to the king, Falk, son of Falk, this man has encroached upon our rights and seized our flocks right at the time of lambing, but they gave birth and the lambs died, and so he returned them to us after so many lambs were lost. Then the king turned to six or seven knights, Arise and render a judgment for him. So they left his audience chamber, sequestering themselves and deliberating until their minds were all agreed upon one decision, and then they returned to the king's audience chamber. We have passed judgment, they said, to the effect that the lord of Banias should pay compensation equal to the value of the lambs that were lost from their flock of sheep. And so the king ordered him to pay compensation. He entreated me and begged and pleaded with me till I accepted from him 400 dinars. That judgment, having been passed by the knights, cannot be changed or rescinded by the king or any Frankish leader. So the knight is someone of greatness in their view. The king said to yours truly, By the truth of my religion, I was made very happy indeed yesterday. May God keep the king ever joyful, I said. What was it that led to your happiness? They told me you were a great knight, he replied, but I hadn't really believed it. My lord, I assured him, I am a knight of my race and people. You see, if the knight is tall and thin, they find him more impressive. There is one other key element that shaped the Carolingian imperial project, and thus the common Frankish identity of the First Crusaders. And that is the church, specifically ties to the Pope. The Pope is featured in our story since at least episode 1.2, but next time on History of the Ultramare, it's time we explore exactly what this office was, how it was evolving in the 11th century, and what motivations Pope Urban had to make his little speech at Claremont.
Hello, unscripted history of the Uchimer little tag here. Um, I wanted to mention that you might have noticed that episodes have been coming out either Monday or Tuesday instead of Sunday, which used to be the pattern. That's mainly because episodes have gotten a bit more, well, they've gotten a bit longer. They've gotten, uh, uh, they've become kind of monsters. Um, and editing just takes a lot longer. Um, normally I used to be able to get it all done on Sundays, but now it's kind of spilled over. Well, here I am on Tuesday, finishing up the, the editing. Um, so that's going to kind of be the pattern for now. Episodes will either come out on, on Sunday, especially if it's a shorter one, but if it's a bit longer, like this one, it'll probably be Monday or Tuesday. Um, that's kind of the trade-off. Uh, otherwise episodes would have to stick to around a 35, 37 minute mark. And I wouldn't have as much time to throw in, I don't know, uh, head splitting sound effects or anything like that. Um, I also wanted to mention that I should be making calls to action. I think they call it, uh, yeah. Tell your friends, tell your grandma, tell your neighbor, uh, history of the Utremer. If you enjoy the podcast and I have gotten a couple of messages via the website, uh, I haven't responded mostly because I'm really bad at doing that. I'm really bad at responding to emails and stuff like that, but I do see them. I do appreciate them. And thank you for your kind words. Those of you that have messaged me via the website, history of the um, I have to update it with a few maps and some of the new sources. I've put everything for season one in a little separate page for season one uh, bibliography. And season two will have its own little page so that you can more easily find books or sources that relate to what we're talking about now. Um, so yeah, pretty scattered. Just random comments here at the end. Uh, I'll see you guys next time.